Following the Lord's resurrection from the dead, he appeared to his disciples on several occasions. And one of these appearances is recorded in John chapter 21. In the early part of the chapter, Peter says, I'm going fishing. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, Thomas and Nathaniel, and two other disciples who are not mentioned by name, said, We will go with you. And immediately they entered into a boat and fished all night long on the Sea of Tiberias, but like so many fishermen before and since, they caught nothing. And the next day they saw what appeared to them to be a stranger standing on the shore, and he shouted to them and said, My children, do you have any meat? And they said, No. He said, Then cast your nets out upon the right side of the ship, and you will find. And when they, were di- when they did as they were bidden, they caught so many fish, they were unable to lift the net into the boat. The disciple whom the Lord loved, and I presume it was John, turned to Peter and said, It is the Lord. And Peter had taken off his outer garment so he could fish. And when he heard that it was the Lord, he put on that outer garment, jumped into the sea, and swam the hundred yards to shore. And sure enough, when he arrived, there was Jesus with a coal of fire prepared, and he had fish and bread laid thereon. And when I get on the other side, I'm going to ask the Lord where he got those fish. At any rate, he had fish and bread laid thereon. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. And when they finally arrived, Jesus turned to Peter and he said, Bring me some of your fish. And Peter went down and grabbed hold of that net, and he pulled it in single-handedly. John marveled that the net did not break. After all, it had 153 great fish in it. Now, I don't know how big a fish has to be to be a great fish, but from my perspective, he has to weigh at least three pounds. So assuming that they weighed on an average of three pounds apiece, that means that Peter pulled in between 450 and 500 pounds of fish and net, and he did it alone. I think he was the Charles Atlas of the Apostles. I can imagine that he was a great, big, robust individual, typical of one you might find on a wrecking crew today. And it seems to me that he was a man who knew how to paint the air blue with his language if he thought the occasion demanded, that is, until he met Jesus. And the Lord matured him and mellowed him, and he became the great apostle Peter we know about today. Peter pulled in the net. He gave some of the fish to the Lord. Jesus continued preparing the breakfast, and finally when he was finished, they sat down and ate. And following the meal, you have this reading of John 21, 15 to 17, that John read to us a while ago. So when they had dined, Jesus saith unto Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? And he saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. And he saith unto him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? And he saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And he saith unto him, Feed my lambs. And he saith unto him again the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? And Peter was grieved when he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. And he saith unto him, Feed my sheep. What in the world is going on in these three verses? And really, to be able to understand them, we have to go back to the night before the Lord was crucified. And that night you may remember that Jesus with his disciples was in an upper room keeping the Passover feast. And he said, This very night all of you will be offended in me, because it is written, and then he cited Zechariah, The shepherd will be smitten and the sheep will be scattered abroad. Well, immediately Peter spoke up and said, Though all men be offended in you, I will not be offended. And the Lord said, Simon, Satan has desired you that he may sift you as wheat. But I prayed for you that your faith fail not, and when you are converted, strengthen the brethren. Why, Lord, he said, I'm willing to go to prison with you. 
And Jesus said, before the cock has crowed the second time, you will have denied me three times. He said, Lord, I am willing to die for you. Now, what was going on on that occasion? Well, Peter was saying, in essence, you don't know me. You don't know my dedication and my consecration and my commitment. You don't know how much I really, truly, deeply, devotedly love you. And Jesus is saying in response, Peter, I know you better than you know yourself. Well, they left the upper room. They went out the eastern side of Jerusalem down to the Kidron Valley. They came up the gentle slopes of the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane means oil press. And in the past, apparently, when they would harvest the olives, they would bring them there and they would press the oil from the olives. And this is how the place got its name. And I've always thought it a little significant that Jesus went to the place of the oil press the night that the sins of the world pressed down upon his precious heart. But he left eight of his apostles in one place. He took Peter, James, and John a little farther. And then he went about a stone's throw from them. And he prostrated himself upon the ground and began to pray. He prayed so fervently and so earnestly, the sweat came from his body as it were great drops of blood. And he said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup depart from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And explaining this to my children when they were small, I said to them, Do you remember that Daddy went to the gymnasium today? Oh, yes, we remember. And you remember when I came home that my clothes were soaking wet with sweat? Oh, yes, Daddy, we remember. And I've said to them, Well, when the Lord prayed on that occasion, His garments were soaking wet with sweat, and if we prayed as hard as we play, there isn't any telling how much good we might be able to do. The Lord arose from the ground. He went back to Peter, James, and John. Now, remember, Peter was the one who would never be offended. He was the one who could go to jail for him. He's the one who could die for him. But he couldn't stay awake for it. And he was sound asleep. And so the Lord said, What, could you not watch with me for an hour? I've heard across the years, Be aware of the Christian with the open mouth and the closed pocketbook. And that means watch the individual who talks big, but he doesn't back it with his money. And I submit to you, we ought to also be careful of the Christian with the open mouth and the closed eyes. The fellow who does the big talk and then he can't even stay awake during a divine service. Now, I realize that sometimes we get sleepy because we're tired. I used to wonder how anyone could, turn, could get sleepy at a church service and then I turned 40. And I have found out from those who are older that it gets worse as time goes by. I know what it is to be worn out. In South Arkansas, where Marilyn and I used to work, we had an elder who uh, had a hard time staying awake. There was something wrong with him physically. As a matter of fact, when he would drive his car in the wintertime, he'd have to roll down the window next to him, turn the heater wide open, and he drove that way or else he'd go to sleep driving. I would go to his house once in a while to eat and to visit. Following the meal, we'd always have a Bible discussion. And it was amazing how many places that fellow was wrong. At any rate, uh, we would have some biblical discussion and he'd make his point and then I'd make my reply. And somehow he could get roused up enough to, to make his point again, and then I'd make my reply, and there he was. He was gone. Just go sound asleep. Well, he'd always sit down here on the second row where Floyd is, 
And when I said dearly beloved, that was his key. He didn't hear anything beyond dearly beloved. Well, I could understand that there was something wrong with him physically. I can understand when you're just worn out. But some people go to sleep because they're bored stiff. Just bored to death by the whole process. Peter was the one who did the big talking. I won't be offended. I'll go to jail for you. I'll die for you. But he couldn't stay awake for him. And the Lord rebuked him by saying, Couldn't you watch for an hour? He left the three and went back to his place and he offered the same prayer the second time. Father, if it's possible, let this cup depart from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. He went back to his disciples and they were asleep again. So he awoke them the second time. He went back to his place of prayer the third time and he offered the same prayer. He went back to his disciples the third time and they were asleep and he awoke them again. But by that time, Judas Iscariot had arrived. And he brought the soldiers with him. And they stepped in to take Jesus as a prisoner. The Scripture indicates there were only two swords in the group. Peter had one of them. That doesn't surprise me. Frankly, I would have thought that he had both of them, one strapped on each side. But he had only one. Somebody in the group was saying, Shall we smite with the sword? Shall we smite with the sword? And while he was asking permission to cut, Peter was already cutting. He had his sword out took a swing at the head of Malchus, a servant of the high priest, missed, but he cut off his ear. I'll guarantee you one thing, he wasn't aiming for an ear. Peter was a head man, he wasn't an ear man. But he got the ear instead of the head. Someone has said as a swordsman he was a real good fisherman. But Jesus went over and grabbed hold of that ear and stuck it back on the side of his head, and he said, put the sword back in its place. Don't you know those who use the sword will perish with the sword? And I can imagine Peter looking at the Lord dumbfounded and perplexed and saying, Well, Lord, don't you understand my devotion and my dedication? I'm just trying to show you how much I love you. I'm trying to protect you. Put the thing up, boy. Well, he put it up. And then the Lord was led away like a common criminal. John went with him. Where was Peter? The Bible says he followed afar off. I've sometimes wanted to yell to him, Hey, Peter! Hey! You're the one who'll never be offended. You're the one who'll go to jail for him. You're the one who'll die for him. What are you doing back there? And I've never yelled at him. Why? Because I've been back there too many times myself. And went down to the palace of the high priest, took Jesus inside through the courtyard and finally into the building. John was allowed to enter because he knew the high priest. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, as you may know, were fellow fishermen. They had a business. And my opinion is that John was allowed to enter because he had been involved with the high priest in the past when he would sell the man fish because the high priestly family controlled the bazaars in Jerusalem. They bought the fish from this group of men and then they resold them at the market. So John was allowed to go inside. Peter arrived a little bit later on. John went back to the gate and he made arrangement for Peter to come in. And out in the courtyard, there was a fire built. The Lord was inside undergoing the mockery of a trial. Peter began to warm himself around the devil's fireside. The lady thought she recognized him. Well, you're one of his followers. He said, no, I don't know the man. A little later in the evening, he was accused a second time of being a follower of the Lord. No, I don't know him. And still a third time, he was accused of being a follower of the Christ. And this time, he denied it with an oath. I know not the man. 
Now, I never have been absolutely certain as to what the Bible means when he says he denied it with an oath. It might have been what we call cussing today. I was driving near here one day. I picked up a hitchhiker. We were driving along, and he was using one expression in profanity after another. And finally he asked, he said, what do you do? I said, I preach. And I never saw a fellow undergo metamorphosis so fast in my life. I mean, all at once he began to tell me about his faith and his religion, his church. It was too late. His speech had already betrayed him. Well, maybe Peter on this occasion just cussed. If you want to convince someone you don't know the Lord, that's a pretty good way to do it. But on the other hand, he might have said something like this, By the living God whom I profess to serve, I don't know him. At any rate, he denied Jesus. And the Bible says the Lord looked on him. I've seen this depicted by an artist. Jesus is standing up there on the balcony. He's looking into the courtyard below. And he sees Peter. I don't know exactly how it happened. That may be the way. Or perhaps the Lord was standing by a door that was ajar. Or maybe he was standing by a window. At any rate, he looked at him. You can preach a sermon with your eyes. You can tell another person just by a look how much you love him or how much you hate him and despise him. And the Lord looked on him. I wonder what he said with that look. I don't know, but I have an opinion. I have an opinion about almost everything. And when he looked at him, I think he must have said something like this, Peter, how I love you, how my heart goes out to you. I warned you, I tried to tell you, and now you've fallen. And about that time, the cock crowed the second time. And the look of Jesus, plus the crowing of the rooster, broke his heart. I'll not go into the details to tell you why, but I think I could prove to you that Peter was around 38 years old when this happened. He was a full, mature, grown man. And he went out and cried. How long has it been since you've had a good cry? How long has it been? My grandmother was an unusual woman. I lived with her for five years after Mother was killed. I never saw my grandmother weep. I never saw her shed a tear. She didn't shed a tear at my mother's funeral, and that was her own daughter. She just didn't cry. Now, that doesn't mean she didn't hurt. She kept it locked up on the inside. She never did cry. Frankly, I'm sort of glad that I can cry easily. If for no other reason, it's sort of a catharsis, it's sort of a release for me just to be able to weep, to be able to cry. My grandmother couldn't cry. Many of us in this audience knew J.D. Bales. I took every course under J.D. that I could take when I was a student and he was a professor at Harding. And I say it respectfully concerning my other teachers, but I really believe that what I got from J.D., was of more use to me later on than what I got in any of my other classes. I never saw J.D. emotional but one time in my life. He spoke to us in chapel one day. And he said, what you need to do is to write to your parents and tell them that you love them. Do something other than ask for money. Tell them you appreciate what they've done. And then he told us about the death of his mother and daddy. 
they were in a truck that was driven up on the railroad track in front of a train. Train hit the truck, killed them both. And when he was a lad at 11, he saw the two of them as they lay in pools of their own blood. And when he told that story, he broke down and cried. I'm going to tell you something. I was so full I could hardly stand it because my mother was killed the same way and I was 11 years old when it happened. So I walked out of the chapel service that morning fighting back the tears. Some little topwater about like myself walked up and said, Well, Bale's had a good speech, but I don't know why in the world he was so emotional. I wanted to knock his head off. Now that's exactly what I wanted to do. I didn't say a word, but I said to myself, All in the world you were able to get out of that speech was something to criticize. J.D. had shown us his heart, and he had wept. And I had wept with him. How long has it been since you've had a good cry? How long has it been since you've done any weeping? One of our brothers was talking to a non-Christian man in South Arkansas. He said, Howard, I'd die and go to hell before I'd tell any man I'm sorry. Howard said, well, you're right about that. Absolutely right about that. How long has it been since you've said to your wife or to your husband or to your mother, to your daddy, to your son, to your daughter... To someone, I'm sorry. Jesus said, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And Paul said, Godly sorrow worketh repentance unto salvation not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. There is a place in the Christian religion for tears. There is a time to cry. I've seen many a person answer the invitation with hot tears coursing down his or her cheeks. I will never discourage such. I don't want anyone to misunderstand me. We're not made out of the same stuff emotionally. And some people can weep and show their sorrow, whereas others don't, like my grandmother. But there is a time for tears. And Peter wept because he had denied his Lord three times. Now, after all of that, these two men had this encounter on the shores of the Galilean Sea. Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? You love me more than these what? These is a pronoun in the original language. It's neuter. And some have argued that because Jesus used the neuter, he was saying, Peter, do you love me more than you love these nets and boats and fishing? Well, that may be right. But you can use the neuter sometimes in reference to people. <clears throat> and I really think he was asking, Simon, son of Jonas, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? Well, that's unusual. Well, back the night before Jesus died, he'd said, though all men be offended in you, I'll not be offended. I'll stand. You can count on me. But he's the one who didn't stand. Now, Simon, what I want you to do is jump up on this limb and crow. I want you to tell me that you love me now more than these other brethren love me. And Jesus used a form of the word agapao. This is a deep, mature, abiding love that will stick through thick and through thin. This is the love that God had for the world. This is the love that Jesus had in dying for us. This is the love that a husband is to have for his wife. 
And so Peter, in his response, said, Well, Lord, I am fond of you. I like you. Now, your later translations show this, but the old King James does not. And this is a form of phileo. I'm fond of you. This is friendship love. This is the love that a high school boy might have for a young lady. You know, I love you for two weeks. And then I love you for two weeks. I fell in and out of love more times than I had fingers and toes before I fell in love. So, well, I'm fond of you. I like you. So Jesus hit him a second time with a strong word. He said, do you love me? And Peter said, well, Lord, you know I like you and I'm fond of you. So when Peter would not go up to the Lord's strong word the third time, he hit him with this. He left his strong word and he went down to the weak one. He said, Peter, do you like me? Are you fond of me? What is your name? My name is John Jones. What is your name? My name is John Jones. Is your name John Jones? Why, you idiot, I just told you twice my name is John Jones, and now you ask me if John Jones is my name. Do you love me? I like you. Do you love me? I like you. Peter, do you like me? And that's why the Bible says he was grieved, or as John's translation says, he was hurt when he said unto him the third time, Do you like me? He just affirmed it twice. He'd already said twice, I like you. I'm fond of you. Are you really sure of that? He's trying to get him to boast. Trying to get him to brag. And in the sweetest, politest, kindest way, he gave that man a spanking. He paddled him. And Peter was a far better man on this occasion than he was the night before Jesus was crucified. The night before the Lord died, all men may be offended in you, but not I. I'll go to jail. I'll die for you. Now then he says, Lord, I like you. I'm fond of you. You see, the night before Jesus died, Peter was trusting in the arm of the flesh. He was depending upon himself. Now then he won't even use the Lord's strong word. I'm fond of you. I like you. I recognize my weaknesses, my failures, my shortcomings. But I'm not going to say that. I have failed, and I failed so miserably. Now then, he's going to throw himself at the feet of the Lord. And in doing that, he finds true strength. If Jesus were here this morning, and he had only one question for you and me, I wonder what it would be. Well, obviously, I don't know. He might ask, have you been baptized? It's a good question, have you? Have you been immersed in the name of Jesus Christ? He might ask, well, how do you feel about denominational division? He might ask, what is your view on the issue of divorce remarriage? I can think of a lot of things he might ask. But my opinion is, if he didn't have but one question for this crowd, it would be, do you love me? Do you love me? Now, frankly, I wish that weren't the question. I would rather the question be, do you attend church regularly? Boy, I can say yes to that one. I'd rather it would be, do you give at least a tenth of your income for the ongoing of the kingdom of God? Because I can say yes to that. I'd rather he had asked, well, have you been a teacher of God's Word? I can say yes to that. I'd rather he ask a lot of things. But when he asked, 
do you love me? That gets back beyond church attendance, and that gets back beyond the contribution, and that gets back beyond the teaching of the Word. That gets back to one's personal relationship with the Savior. Do you love me? I heard about a young preacher who was hired by a church to be its full-time minister. So he thought the first thing he ought to do is get out and visit with all of the members. He went to one home, and the man of the house was away at work, but the lady was there. And, and so he asked the lady, does Jesus live here? He didn't stay very long. And she thought about that all day. And in the evening, her husband came in. She said, well, our, our new preacher came by. Well, what did he have to say? She said, not much. He just asked if Jesus lived here. Well, didn't you tell him that we attend church regularly? She said, I didn't want to ask well, didn't you tell him that, that we're generous and liberal in our giving? She said, that isn't what he asked. He just wanted to know if Jesus lived here. And probably if the Lord had only one question for us, it would be something like that. Do you love me? Do I live in your heart? Is our relationship genuine? Is it real? Or is it just something that people can see from the outside, but it's not right on the inside? As a country boy would say, that brings us up to the lick log. We have to admit what we are. We're fully exposed. We're vulnerable. Do you really love the Lord? The Lord wrote to the church at Ephesus through the pen of the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 2, and He commanded them, He said, You have tried those who claim to be apostles, and you have found them to be liars. They were sound in the doctrine. He said, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. I like peanuts, and I'm not talking about the comic strip. I like to eat peanuts. You ever cracked into one that really looked fine, and when you got on the inside, the two shriveled up pieces of something that were hardly fit to eat? That's a church at Ephesus. It really looked good on the outside. Couldn't stand false teachers and rebuke them. But it had left its first love. I read a story about an old couple rocking along one evening. The wife said to the husband, John, do you love me? He said, Sari, 45 years ago when we stood before the preacher, I told you I loved you. If I ever changed my mind, I'll let you know. He told her once, that was enough. But love is a thing that has to be nourished. And if it isn't nourished, it can die. The flame or the fire can go out. The church at Ephesus had lost its first love. We do a great deal of talk about restoration, and I want to make clear that I believe in the restoration movement with all of my heart. I believe we ought to be working to restore primitive New Testament Christianity to this century. We ought to strive to be today what they were in the first century, nothing more, nothing less, and nothing beside. We ought to strive to be Christians and Christians only. But when we're talking about restoration... There's an aspect that perhaps we ought to consider that sometimes we forget. And I can best illustrate it this way. A fellow has a stick of dynamite in his hand that blows up and he's torn into a million pieces. Some others are able to put him back together again because of their medical expertise. 
Watch him walk. He walks like a zombie because in our work of restoration, we fail to put back in the heart. And when we're talking about a restoration of New Testament Christianity, we must also restore the heart. We can't function without that. Do you love me? I think that's what Jesus would ask. Do you love me? Well, I love you, Lord, but... but, but. Whoop, 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 whoop. I can take on the disposition of a billy goat and I can just about butt everything out of the Scripture. I love you, Lord, but... That won't work. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. One of the later translations says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. There's an alternate reading. In the same chapter, he that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. He that loveth me not, keepeth not my sayings. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. And the proof of one's love is in his obedience. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. The sum, substance, and total totality of our religion is commandment keeping. Well, someone says that's legalism. No, it's not. It's love. It's love. Keeping His commandments is an expression of one's love. That's what the Lord said. I know the Lord's right. And so it's not, I love you, Lord, but. It's, I love you, Lord, therefore. I will do what you want me to do. Jesus, in the giving of the Great Commission, said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. I wonder if there's anyone in the audience this morning who has not rendered initial obedience to Christ. The Apostle Peter said, Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I wonder if there's anyone here today who has never initially repented of sin and been immersed in the name of Christ for the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, we can look at these two passages and we can say, well, I love you, Lord, but... Or we can look at these two passages and say, I love you, Lord, therefore, I'm going to trust you and I'm going to repent, turn away from my sins, and I'm going to be baptized because I want to express my love for you and obedience. I wonder if there's anyone here this morning who's grown cold and careless and negligent, who's really bored to death by the whole thing, who needs to come back for renewal and restoration rededication, who needs to listen to the Apostle Peter who said to an erring brother, Repent therefore of this thy wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. If so, what's going to be your response this morning? You would say, well, I love you, Lord, but, uh, but, uh, or you're going to say, I love you, Lord, therefore, I'm going to do what you said. I really don't like this question. What question? The question of the Lord. Do you love me? But when it's all said and done, this is where the rubber meets the road. Christianity is one woman and her Lord. It is one man and his Lord. 
It is a personal relationship. It can't be faked. Do you love me? Now, you've heard what I have to say. We're going to sing an invitation song. And if you need to come this morning in response to this invitation, in true penitence and faith, to be baptized, do it. You need to come back home and start all over again. You do that, won't you? While we stand and sing.